After the sermon, we'll sing Psalm 103, 5 and 8. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, God has given us the tremendous privilege that we may be in covenant fellowship with him. In fact, that's how God created man. God created man in covenant fellowship with him. God put man in covenant fellowship with him at the time of creation. We are told that in a very vivid way in the book of Genesis, when we are told that God would come in the cool of the day, we may take that as an expression of God coming to exercise that covenant fellowship that he had established with man at the beginning. So God put man in covenant fellowship with him. But then came the fall into sin. And God maintained covenant fellowship with man. The fellowship could go on. But only because God made that promise. The promise of the seed of the woman. The so-called protevangel. The promise which spoke of a savior who would come into the world and crush the devil with the cross. And we know all of this from God's word. It's in God's word that God has revealed himself to us. And we know that through the saving merits of Jesus Christ, we may now live in covenant fellowship with God. We may be a part of that covenant of grace. We may be his children in the covenant of grace. And God is our Father in the covenant of grace. And the Lord Jesus is the mediator of the covenant of grace, in whose name we may pray. And so, brothers and sisters, as God's people, we respond to God as the one who has revealed himself to us in his word. Because it's in the word that we know that we are in covenant with God. And so when we pray and thereby exercise that covenant fellowship with God, we must always do so as God has laid down for us in his word. When the disciples asked the Lord Jesus, teach us to pray, then he taught them to pray according to the pattern that he gave in the so-called Lord's Prayer. And in these next few Lord's Days of the Heidelberg Catechism, our confession will be dealing with what the Lord Jesus taught us to pray about in the Lord's Prayer. Pray then like this, our Savior said. And the very first thing the Lord Jesus taught us was how we are to address God in our prayers. He said, begin by saying, our Father in heaven. And that's what we're dealing with this afternoon. That's the focus of Lord's Day 46. And I summarize it as follows. Our Father in heaven. 
this address teaches us two things. It speaks to us about God's love and power. And secondly, our reverence and trust. Pray then like this, said the Lord Jesus. Our Father in heaven. And we know two things. This is about God's love and power. And secondly, our reverence and trust. It's about God's love. Lord's Day 46 makes that very clear. That it's about God's love is evident from two things. First of all, God has become our Father through Christ. And furthermore, this love of God is evident from the fact that we may confess that he will much less deny us what we ask of him in faith than our fathers would refuse us earthly things. So those two things that we are confessing in Lord's Day 46 attest to us about God's love. He is our Father through Christ. And he will much less deny us what we ask of him in faith than our fathers would refuse us earthly things. And if you think about that, brothers and sisters, that is truly amazing. To be able to confess God's love toward us. To be able to say that God is our Father through Christ and that he will not deny us what we ask of him in true faith. That is truly amazing. Why? Well, what are we of nature? What are we like by nature? We are sinners. And the Apostle Paul makes that very clear for us in Romans chapter 8 when he says in Romans chapter 8 verse 3 that we are sinful flesh. That's his description of fallen man. Sinful flesh. And he goes on to say in verse 2, fallen man is subject to the law of sin and death. We are all guilty and condemnable before God by nature. We all deserve God's eternal condemnation. We heard this morning from the form for holy baptism that baptism signifies to us the impurity of our souls. It tells us that we need washing. But God sent his son. God sent his only begotten son for fallen sinners for people who are guilty of original sin and actual sins, for people who deserve His eternal condemnation, God sent His only Son to redeem fallen sinners. And the Apostle Paul refers to that in Romans chapter 8, verse 3. When Paul writes there about what God the Father did 
for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh. God sent his own Son to deal with sin. And I cannot help but think of that beautiful text in the Bible, which is probably the most well-known text in all of Holy Scripture, John 3, verse 16, where we read, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. God gave His only Son to redeem sinners. And that's what makes it so amazing, brothers and sisters, that we may confess that God has become our Father through Christ and that we may pray to Him. And that's what makes it so amazing that we may confess that He will not deny us what we ask of Him in true faith because we are His children in the covenant of grace. Isn't that beautiful? We may have covenant fellowship with God in the covenant of grace. Those who embrace the covenant promises in true faith may experience that covenant fellowship with God. They may know that communion of life which there is in the covenant of grace for those who have embraced Jesus Christ in true faith and who have embraced those covenant promises signified and sealed in baptism in true faith. They may be sons of God in the true and deep spiritual sense. Those who have embraced the covenant promises in true faith are sons and daughters of God in the deep spiritual sense. They are the ones who have the communion of life with God. Not just a legal relationship with God in the covenant of grace, but the communion of life with God in the covenant of grace. And they are the sons and daughters of God in the deep spiritual sense. And they are the heirs of life eternal. They share in all his riches. All the saving merits of Jesus Christ. And everything that is promised in the gospel for this life and for the life eternal. Really, that's what the Apostle Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, we read in verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
And then the Apostle Paul goes on to say in verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. What a beautiful verse. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And they may cry in covenant fellowship, Abba, Father. It's stated very emphatically, brothers and sisters, because the Apostle Paul says there in verse 15, they cry, Abba, Father. Abba is the Aramaic for father, and then father as we have it here translated in English is stated in the Greek, so you have it in Aramaic and Greek right side by side, and that is intended to be emphatic. It's also intended to be very personal, because when something is very personal to you, when something is very heartfelt, you express that, or you tend to express that in your native language. That's why when some of the immigrants came to Canada, it took them a long time to start praying in, Dutch, in English. They kept praying in Dutch because that was the language of their heart when they were communing with God in prayer. And now the Apostle Paul writes that those who have the spirit of sonship cry, Abba, Father, that was a cry from the heart in their native language, Aramaic. And then the Apostle Paul goes on to say in verse 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. If children, then heirs, heirs of eternal riches. That then also explains why we may confess that when we pray to our Father as children who have embraced the covenant promises in true faith, He will also provide for us all things necessary for body and soul. He provides for us now, and He will provide for us in eternity with all His riches. And the Apostle Paul wants to assure us of this because in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul also deals with the adversities that Christians sometimes experience in this fallen and broken world. And the Apostle Paul wants to assure us that we can rest secure and at peace in the love of our Father. As children who embrace the covenant promises in true faith, who call out to God from the heart, Abba, Father, we may rest secure and at peace in who God is and in His love for us. That becomes very clear from Romans chapter 8, 38 and 39. Where Paul says, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And every time a believing covenant child calls out to God in prayer, Father in heaven, that covenant child may lay claim to God's love. That's the beautiful reality of covenant fellowship with God in the covenant of grace. To know that life communion with God in the covenant of grace is a wonderful reality. Also, don't overlook this afternoon that our Savior taught us to pray, Our Father, Our Father. That also speaks to us about God's love. Not just that God has become our Father through Christ, but that He is our Father. And each believing child of God may draw tremendous comfort from that and may see the love of God in that. To think, you may say personally, as a believer, to think that God has put me in the assembly of his people. To think that I may be a part of that vast number of people from all tribes and tongues and nations that is being gathered together as the body of the Lord Jesus Christ in covenant fellowship with the Father. To think that I may be a part of that speaks to us of God's love. And then to think of the fact that there is a body of Christ throughout this world. To think that in his electing love, God has chosen a certain number of people. To think that the Lord Jesus Christ is busy gathering, defending, and and preserving for himself a church chosen to everlasting life. A church chosen to everlasting life. That's amazing. And that speaks to us of God's love. It speaks to us of his electing love. Because in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is talking about God's electing love. And in the end, when all the believers are gathered together before Jesus Christ on his great day, that will be the assembly of the elect. And this morning in the prayer for baptism, there was that prayer that the child that was baptized this morning would embrace the Lord Jesus Christ in true faith and then on the day of Christ be present in the assembly of the elect. That's about God's love. His electing love. Well, the catechism goes on to speak about God's love because the catechism goes on to say 
that God the Father will much less deny us what we ask of him in faith and our fathers would refuse us earthly things. That's the other aspect. Not only has God the Father become our Father through Jesus Christ, but as such, he will not deny us what we ask of him in faith. And the Catechism says, he will much less deny us what we ask of him in faith than our fathers would refuse us earthly things. The Catechism is operating here in this statement from the assumption that Human fathers are good fathers, but the sad reality is, also in the church, not all fathers are good fathers. But the Catechism says, God, as a father to his children in the covenant of grace, is infinitely better than even the best fathers on this earth. And that's what covenant children who may have had bad experiences with their fathers need to keep in mind. God the Father is infinitely better than even the best fathers on this earth. I think, for example, of what the Lord Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus spoke about God as Father to his children in the covenant of grace. And the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 11, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? How much more? I think also of what the psalmist says in Psalm 103. Verse 13, well-known words about God. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. God as father is the most compassionate father imaginable. But sometimes there are painful things. The Catechism says in Lord's Day 46, in keeping with what the Lord Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, God the Father will much less deny us what we ask of Him in faith and our fathers would refuse us earthly things. But sometimes God's covenant children have Serious adversities in life. Terrible things happen. Illnesses. Accidents. Struggles. And maybe we even think about this a little bit more this afternoon in light of the fact that the Egyptian family that we were sponsoring was deported to Egypt. There was a request this past week via the email to the congregation to pray. And I'm sure that there were many prayers that went up to God the Father in heaven to make it possible for them to stay where they were in Europe. 
But then we received the notice that they were deported. And then we wonder, why did that have to happen? We prayed about it, and don't we confess here that God will not deny us what we ask of him in true faith. And that's just one example, a very serious example that might bring it home for you this afternoon, how God's children sometimes struggle with this. They pray in true faith, in communion of life with the Father. They pray, and their prayers are not answered as they would like. Then we need to remind ourselves of what Holy Scripture tells us about this kind of thing. I think, for example, of the Apostle Paul, who prayed fervently three times about a thorn in his flesh. Three times I pleaded with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. I think also what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, verse 32, we read, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul means there that God will always give us what we need when we ask that he cause us to persevere in the faith. God will give us the grace to carry our load. God will lead us to the eternal destination for our lives. Seen in the whole context of this chapter, the Apostle Paul means that God will graciously give us all things so that we will arrive at the destination for our lives. Eternal fellowship with Him on the new earth. And when things don't go the way we would like in life, when we deal with adversities, whether that be sickness or famine or persecution, that's one of the things that Paul mentions in that lineup of ills that we experience in this fallen world, then we need to remember that God has a plan and God has a goal. And every believing covenant child of God may hold on to that reality. God will give us all things we need as we travel to that goal. And then God's power. Our Father in heaven. In heaven. The Catechism explains that to mean that these words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly manner and to expect from his almighty power all things we need for body and soul. That gives us the right framework. That's also why we begin our worship services with that votum 
from Psalm 124, verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He who made all things is the God who travels with us on the journey through life. He is the God who is able to provide. He is the God who is in control of all things. The address teaches us about God's love and God's power. And God uses his power for those whom he loves. Those who look to him. And he makes all things work together for his goal. And then our reverence and trust. Catechism says that the address of our prayers, our Father in heaven, our Father is intended to awaken in us that childlike reverence that ought to be basic for our prayers, that childlike reverence. I think, for example, of what God had to say about Judah in the days of Malachi. In Malachi 1, verse 6, we read, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? God expected honor. God expected reverence as a father. And by teaching us to address God as our father, the Lord Jesus wanted to awaken in us that childlike reverence. And that reverence is augmented by the fact that we pray to our father in heaven. The catechism says that we ought to have no earthly thought of his heavenly majesty he is highly exalted and worthy of our reverence. And then our trust. Our trust. He's our Father. And the Catechism says that this is something that is intended to awaken in us that childlike trust, which should be basic to our prayer. God has become our Father. And will much less deny us what we ask of in faith than our earthly fathers would refuse us earthly things. That's a matter of trust. And the fact that our Father is in heaven, that inspires trust. He's at the place of power. And the Catechism expresses that when it explains that part of the address by saying, these words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly manner and to expect from His almighty power all things we need for body and soul. We may expect in trust because He is almighty and He is in heaven. And again, that's where the questions come. Not only the questions about God's love, which I just addressed a moment ago, but closely related to that, the questions about our trust. We have trust issues sometimes. We wonder where God is leading us, and we wonder why things don't improve for us. And again, we wonder about the fact that 
that Egyptian family was deported. Can you trust God? Well, then we need to remember that we believe. We believe. There are many questions that we have in life, brothers and sisters, for which we will never get answers here. But we believe. I believe in God. And I believe that God is my Father through Jesus Christ. And I believe that He will not deny me. I believe. The Apostle Paul deals with that also in Romans chapter 8. The deepest answer to our questions as they affect our trust issues. The deepest answer to our questions has to do with God's purpose. God's purpose for us. Every believing child of God may draw tremendous comfort from Romans 8 verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's the big picture. All things work together for good for those who have been called according to God's purpose. You may trust that. And God's purpose, what is that? Well, first of all, God's purpose is rooted in his love. His electing love. And then the Apostle Paul says in verse 30, And those whom he predestined he also called. And those whom he called he also justified. And those whom he justified he also glorified. There is the trajectory, brothers and sisters. Something that started even before the foundation of the world. Those whom he predestined. And it ends up in eternity. Those whom he also glorified. There's the whole sweep. The sweep of life for every believing child of God. From election to glorification and everything that happens along the way, despite all our questions, are somehow intended to prepare us for that goal, that destination. And it's within that context that we pray, Father, Father in heaven. There are indeed many things that are sad and difficult in this life. There's much suffering. And Paul mentions so many examples here. But he writes in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And furthermore, Paul writes in verse 23, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In all the adversities of life, in all the disappointments, in all the questions, 
we groan. We groan. And we eagerly await that day when we will be fully redeemed, fully redeemed from all the brokenness of life in this fallen world, fully redeemed from all the power of the devil, that defeated ruler of this world, whom Christ conquered on the cross when he crushed his head at Calvary. And with that awareness, we lift our voices in prayer to God and we pray, our Father in heaven. Amen.